Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, September the 10th, 2023. Earlier today, an interesting show with an American writer, Michael Harriet. Um, on how he discovered America at 8 p.m. He knows the exact time on November the 4th, 1980. This is the introduction to his new book, Black AF History, The Unwhitewashed Story of America. That was the moment a young um, Michael uh, Harriet uh, recognized that Ronald Reagan had been elected the 40th president of the United States and talked to Harriet about Reagan's policy on race, his southern strategy, and of course we touched inevitably on Richard Nixon and Reagan's ideological um, debt, if that's the right word, to Nixon. We've done lots of shows, of course, on Richard Nixon, the most controversial uh, American politician probably in history, certainly in the 20th century, did one with Kevin Boyle, who believes that America remains haunted by Richard Nixon's paranoia, particularly his cultural paranoia. Uh, Boyle, who teaches at Northwestern University in Chicago, has a very influential book, The Shattering America in the 60s. Boyle, of course, is no great fan of Richard Nixon. But we have had some Nixon defenders on the show. Uh, Last year, we had Dwight Chapin, who actually went to jail for Richard Nixon doesn't seem to regret it. He had a book out, The President's Man, The Memoirs of Nixon's Trusted Aid. Nixon, of course, he's been dead for a while, but he won't die in intellectual terms. And today we're back with Nixon, a different take on it uh, by my guest, Paul Carter. He has an interesting new book, Richard Nixon, California's Native Son. And he's joining us from his law office in uh, Long Beach, California. Uh, Paul, welcome and congratulations on the new book. Before we get to its themes, you tend to, I think, be a little bit more in the um, in the Dwight Chapin camp, although you didn't go to jail for Richard Nixon. Uh, in broad terms, though, with Watergate and, of course, Nixon's southern strategy and the dog whistling that seems to have metastasized into Donald Trump, Do you really think that Richard Nixon deserves a second or third chance? Absolutely. And first, thank you for having me here today. Um, There are so many misconceptions about Richard Nixon and even, you know, referencing like the dog whistle or um, the Southern strategy. And so much of it is premised on this um misunderstanding as to what richard nixon's youth was really all about and what he was like as a person and um, that is what is really explored in my book and i cover in great detail you know quite frankly his all-american life growing up in uh, southern california and quite the opposite of being bold or having a chip on his shoulder i mean not not bold but um, um insecure or having a chip on his shoulder he was quite bold and quite confident and and quite successful and um, and and really the opposite of the the image that's been propagated about him that is that is vested into the American culture and 
you know, to me, the question becomes, you know, is Richard Nixon a villain that, that got us just desserts or was he an all-American person um, that really had a truly successful and all-American life? And, and that's what my book explores. Yeah, I'm not sure, um, Paul, whether you, one can't have it both ways. I mean, I, I just reread um, Rick Perlstein's Nixonland, very influential book. Perlstein's been on the show talking about his book, Reaganland. I need to get him back, actually, to talk about Nixonland. I don't think Perlstein would disagree with some of what you said. I mean, clearly, Richard Nixon was a remarkably smart man. He was whatever he was, top of his law school at Duke, worked incredibly hard, amazingly smart, dedicated, focused. There's no doubt about that. Um, but it's 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 the moral issues, of course, that um, uh, that are so controversial. Are, are you arguing that you don't think that Richard Nixon was profoundly morally flawed? He was not profoundly morally flawed. He was no more flawed than anybody else. I know well, that's that, a rather, I mean, no more than, I don't know, uh, Jimmy Carter or, or Gerald Ford. I mean, most people, um, most people seem at least to be less morally flawed. In what sense do you mean that? Well, take a look at what he did. And rather than looking at it and coming to the conclusion that he's a crook, um, you, if you take a look at what he did, you come away from it and you look at it and you say he was fundamentally honest. You know, look at the Watergate, uh, the, the tapes, for example. Everybody told him, destroy the tapes. He knew what was on the tapes. He said no. Even his wife told him to burn the tapes on the White House lawn. And he said no, and he preserved those tapes. And when the tapes were ultimately ruled on by the court to give them up, and he could have destroyed them before they were subpoenaed and before they were subject to the subpoena, and he would have been within his rights. And he, he said no, and he kept them, and then he turned them over, knowing what was on them. And that's fundamental honesty. If you look at the politicians since, look at how many politicians have deleted emails or, or their, their devices on which emails are served. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I, I'm not sure this is the right, I mean, especially since your book really isn't about Watergate. Um, and I guess I asked the question in the first place, but um, it, it's such a complicated story. And, and certainly uh, the fact that he didn't destroy the tapes doesn't give him some sort of moral pass. I mean, there were many other issues associated with what he did in, 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 in association with those tapes. Uh, I, I'm curious, um, I, I'm curious, Paul, uh, do you remember? I, I mean, you. I'm not sure how old you were. When were you born? I was born in 1965. And so, um, for you, Richard Nixon is essentially just a, a memory. What is it about Nixon that you know Chapin was on the show? He worked for Nixon, so I can understand his passionate defense. But what is it about Nixon that makes you so passionate? Why have you written a book? Why have you dedicated some of your intellectual life to Nixon? Well, you're right. I don't. I don't have a stake in the whole um, Richard Nixon uh, legacy. I wasn't alive during. Well, I was alive during the the '60s, but you know, I was just a child. My earliest memory of Richard Nixon was um, when I was nine years old, and he came. My father came home um, early from work and told me to come inside and watch the president resign. And um, I'm a product of school, uh, public school education, and I basically thought. Um, uh, everything about Richard Nixon that most everyone else has thought about him, that, um, you know, he, he was wrong and, 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 and he was probably ornery and devious. 
And I was in the Navy in the 1980s. Um, coincidentally, my commanding officer was one of the longest held POWs and most extensively tortured. Um, his name was Rodney Al Knudsen and Richard Nixon brought him home. And my commanding officer inspired me to go to um, college and to follow my dream of being an attorney. And so while I was at Cal State Fullerton, um, my mom recommended that I volunteer as a docent at the Richard Nixon Library. And, and I did, and I ended up meeting Richard Nixon. And in meeting him, that dichotomy between what he was really like and what his public image was, and even my, my perceptions of what he was going to be like, really stuck with me. And um, fast forward almost 20 years later, and I reconnected with a couple of uh, people from my Navy service. And I ended up going out and spending the day with a companion officer of a guided missile cruiser off the coast of California. And the mayor of Whittier was with us. And he had... Um, and Whittier, of course, is where uh, Nixon grew up in California. Right, right. And and so I have kind of offhanded just asked him, you know, do you have all the places where Nixon was born and raised um, designated or, you know, landmarked or whatever? And he said, no, they kind of forgot about all of it. And... I just thought to myself, you know, he's the president of the United States. I'm going to make a map of his Southern California life. And in doing that, I discovered um, that there was oral histories at Cal State Fullerton, my alma mater. They had about 200 oral histories from Richard Nixon's intimates and friends and colleagues from his youth. And what I really wanted to know was, you know, where was the soda fountain at that Nixon went to when he was at Whittier College? And, and you know, where, where did the kids go out on, uh, you know, for dates and what did they do? And... Um, I started reading those oral histories and then I got another 400 oral histories from Whittier College of the Nixon intimates and people from Whittier. And that was over 10,000 pages. And what really, really struck me was the person that emerged in those oral histories was, was really similar to that person that I met when I met Richard Nixon working at his presidential library. And it really, you know, screamed out to me to write a book about what he was really like in his youth, um, you know, very, very successful, very confident, very, very well liked. Um, you know, he was considered to be best man on campus when he was at Whittier College. Um, when he when he was graduating Whittier College, his classmates, the athletes on campus wrote him a letter and they said that out of every graduating class, one person always becomes a great person. And we all believe that you're destined to be so, that. So you would reject the Pearlstein argument and Pearlstein developed this. I'm sure many others have, have followed it, I guess, in, in a way. Uh, Boyle also follows it, that that Nixon was always haunted by demons. They always had huge cultural and social chip to, chips on his shoulder. He was always angry against the Eastern establishment and the people in power and that his childhood was challenging at best. Do you, you, you think that he was a, a well-rounded, happy-go-lucky kind of fellow? Absolutely. Always very serious, but absolutely. You know, he was eighth grade class president um, in, at Fullerton High School in his first two years. Well, going back to eighth grade. So, but know, I, I, I take your point, but so what would you say? to So, what, so why, what, what do you make of the, the Perlstein argument that's become sort of pretty much accepted is did Palestine make it up no but historians seem to be very similar to attorneys and we don't relitigate every case we take precedent and we don't reinvestigate every prior case we build on each case as precedent 
And if you look at the, the, the primary source biographies about Richard Nixon, they all came out after he resigned. And they were really psycho historians. You know, Fawn Brody was the leader of that. She admits she despised Richard Nixon. And um, she is the one that developed that, that, that theory about him having a chip on his shoulder. And she cites to some of the oral histories at Cal State Fullerton. Um, it's my position that she really cherry picked the, the positions and misrepresented them. And if you actually go back and read those oral histories, and I've cited them voluminously in, 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 in my book, I have over 200 pages of, of, of footnotes um, because I want, I'm not here to really say anything about Richard Nixon other than what the evidence says about Richard Nixon. And if you don't believe what I say, take a look and just go look at the source material. It's available to everyone. Yeah, and to be fair, um, your book is not really an attempt to, so to speak, whitewash uh, Nixon. I mean, it's, and I want to talk about the, the, the Californian themes uh, later. Uh, but there's clearly, um, there is a, it's, it's, it's impossible to write about Nixon without some sort of moral dimension. If you're going to write a positive biography, then implicitly, at least, you are um, forgiving him, perhaps, or, or simply refusing to acknowledge any guilt. So are you saying that he wasn't a paranoid man? I mean, behind Watergate, wh whether or not Watergate was a terrible sin, there was certainly a degree of paranoia, and the tapes reveal that. A man who saw enemies everywhere, I mean, that's not typical of all politicians, certainly not even of Reagan. I don't know about seeing enemies everywhere, but it seems to me that every president is pretty well aware of who their detractors and their enemies are. And you see that, you know, probably every president since Nixon, you see them kick off different news media off their Air Force One or reject White House passes and do similar things that would be tantamount to an enemies list. I don't think that um, um, that's any really new thing, but there, no, I don't see that Richard Nixon at all was um, paranoid. Um, I, ironically, um, Paul, in a way, your attempt to sort of normalize him and say, well, he had a happy childhood and he was loved and he went to the soda fountain. You're making him, in historical terms, a less interesting figure. You're turning him into Harry Truman. Well, but he really was, you know, he's a human being. And, and that's really what my point is. Well, I is mean, the, the fact that he's a human being doesn't tell us anything one way or the other. I mean, there's no no one's ever argued that he wasn't a human being. But if you look at if you look at his history in Southern California, it's really interesting because, you know, one issue that people say is, well, he was a Quaker that went to war. Well, so was Nathaniel Green that uh, that, that was in George Washington's Revolutionary Army. And if you, if you look in Whittier, you have Whittier proper, and then you have East Whittier. And there's the Whittier Friends Church, and there's the East Whittier Friends Church. The East Whittier Friends Church, where Richard Nixon was a member, almost all the men that were Quakers joined the, the war effort in World War II. Um, even the most liberal of them, one of whom was a gentleman by the name of Merton Ray, who's, or, uh, yeah, Merton Ray who's, whose father had almost been elected governor in Nebraska, um, he even said once once the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, the time for talk was over. But then if you look at the, the Whittier First Friends Church, almost none of those men joined uh, the service. And so he was really a product of his community. And what he did was not unusual in his community. And that's really what I'm bringing out. And I'm saying, take a look at his his individual community. If you look at him in terms of, you know, people saying that he had a chip on his shoulder. 
actually in the East Whittier community where he grew up, his father was quite successful. And his family even bought um, what was known as the studio estate in 1939 in the hills above Whittier College. And they ended up moving out of it by about 1943 um, because for Hannah and Nixon, she felt that the house was too ostentatious. And, you know, when Richard Nixon was going to college at Whittier, it was in the heart of the depression and the teachers were being paid in land in some instances because everyone was so broke. You know, the students couldn't afford a 10 cent tamale. Yet Richard Nixon was one of the six people in, in the university that owned a car. And, you know, wages back then were about 30 cents an hour and he paid $300 for his car. Um, and, and so you, you would figure that would take about six months of nonstop work and nonstop saving just to get that money. And that's not the impression anyone has of him, but that's the reality. Well, I don't know. I think that in there anyone would doubt that Richard Nixon was an intensely hardworking man. Anyway, we are talking with, uh, Paul Carter, who is a brave man. He's written, uh, sympathetic biography of Richard Nixon called California's Native Son. I want to take a break now, Paul. Afterwards, I want to talk specifically about the thesis of your book about Nixon and California, which I think is in some ways quite interesting. I mean, we, we can't keep on really litigating Nixon. Uh, I've made it clear where I stand. You've made it clear where you stand. Uh, after the break, though, I want to talk about Nixon as a Californian, pres uh, as a politician, president, man, but I want to remind us that uh, I want to remind our listeners that this show is brought to you by Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. Very open minded, hopefully like this show. And I'm going to uh, run a short ad for Liberties and then we'll be back with Paul Carter to talk Richard Nixon. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties, it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. You can check out more about Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are talking with... Uh... Paul Carter, the author of an interesting new book on Richard Nixon. And I'm not sure we need another book, but they keep on coming. Richard Nixon, California's native son. We're talking at a time, of course, where there is some possibility um, that Gavin Newsom will run for president uh, if Joe Biden decides he doesn't want to run. Gavin Newsom is born and, born and bred Californian. He's been on the show several times, uh, Northern Californian. Well, Paul Carter's new book, um, is premised on the thesis that, California, that, that Richard Nixon is California's only native son president. What does that say, Paul? Why is that an interesting fact? If you look at the history of the country and the development of our country, you know, it developed through the Northeast um, and all of you know, the whole area that's considered the Northeastern establishment made up uh, of the 13 uh, original colonies. That's where all the Ivy League schools are are, are, are within. And then all of the, the political leaders and the presidents came within that area. And then it slowly began to migrate out and south and uh, to the west. And by about the time Richard Nixon came along, really the furthest national uh, politicians that you really had of, of great prominence were just barely west of the Mississippi. 
And you have Richard Nixon and his family. Uh, well, you have Richard Nixon coming onto national prominence in the, in the 19, late 1940s. And he's a product of a family that gave up their life in the, the North, Northeast and the Midwest. And they went across the Great Plains. They went across the Rocky Mountains and they came to Southern California in the late 1800s and the early 1900s at a time when you know, travel wasn't easy and there were no promises out here. And it took a lot of great risk to do that. And it's this rugged individualism and the self-reliance that, that his family really had. And he is the, the, the first and only native-born Southern California, native-born Californian to become the president. And he had that rugged individualism about him. And um, he had that, that Western ideology that a lot of people attribute to Ronald Reagan. Um, in fact, if you look at Ronald Reagan, he was a Truman Democrat. And in the period between 1948, when Ronald Reagan was a Truman Democrat in California, you had Richard Nixon as um, the vice president. You had Earl Warren, who was the governor of California that became the chief justice of the Supreme Court. You had Goodwin Knight that, that su succeeded Earl Warren to the governorship. And then you had Bill Nolan, who was the senator from California. And throughout the 1950s, um, Earl Warren went to the Supreme Court and then Bill Nolan decided to run against Goodwin Knight for the governorship in 1958. So Goodwin Knight ran for Nolan's Senate seat and they both lost. And you had Richard Nixon really as the last Californian standing as a prominent politician. And he's working with Ronald Reagan. And by 1964, Ronald Reagan you know, it becomes a Republican and it's really subscribing to those Jeffersonian principles that, that Richard Nixon had, which were limited government and fiscal responsibility. And that open spaces type of leadership that, that, that Richard Nixon really believed in from, from being a Southern Californian and growing up out here where, you know, we had open spaces and clean oceans and, and he was by the beach in his 1970, um, uh, State of the Union address, he said that clean air, clean water, open spaces, you, you know, should be a birthright of every American. And that that was because of his youthful experience growing up in Southern California. What about the, his lifelong anti-communism, of course, that brought him to national prominence um, in, in, uh, in the 1950s? Is that somehow associated with his Californian upbringing? Absolutely. In the in the in the elementary school years, you know, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, he started um, going into debate. And by his freshman and sophomore year in high school, he was winning the um, constitutional oratorical contest put on by the Los Angeles Times. During those years, he he came to determine that the the United States Constitution was the finest document ever struck by the hand of men, and he was really devoted to democracy. And then he went off to World War II and he actually served in the South Pacific in, in combat. Um, you know, no U.S. president's ever been a Marine, but Richard Nixon is the only United States president that served with a Marine Corps combat unit in war. And he received a letter of commendation for his combat service. And so he knew what was what the difficulties of war fighting. And then he went to Europe as a freshman congressman with the Herder Commission, and he saw the ravages of post-World War II Europe and the communist influences that were taking place and trying to become in strongholds in, in places such as um, Italy. And it really solidified his belief um, with his lifelong dedication to the constitution and democracy of the need to fight those influences. 
and and it, and it really solidified in him that belief, which he he had a lifelong um, you know dedication well, to. But uh, critics of Nixon will suggest it's one thing not to be a communist; it's another to be rather paranoid about communism, McCarthyism. That Nixon uh inflamed the paranoia about anti-communism in america is there no truth to that and is that somehow associated with his southern californian roots which historically of course was quite conservative it's it's very different today well richard nixon really wasn't paranoid about communism you have to remember that in uh, 19 you know i think 59 he went to uh, Russia and he had the kitchen debate with Khrushchev and, and and had extensive meetings with Khrushchev and and Richard Nixon was never one that believed in outlying communism. He believed that communism should be taught in schools in our country. He believed that it's something you have to understand to know to be against. But I, 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 in in the context, he, he may not have been paranoid about Russian or Chinese communism, but he was paranoid. I think about the threat of communism internally he was very, very close to J. Edgar Hoover. I think they, of, of, he, he was, of all American politicians, he was the closest to Hoover, given his enormously long career. And he was very much associated with a lot of the, the witch hunts against communists within America. Actually, if you, if you look at that, he was on the House Un-Americans uh, Committee, which, which was the committee that did all the blacklisting in Hollywood. And he's never been associated with doing the blacklisting. He's always been associated with being the person that was actually fair about the way he conducted his investigations. And so I, I would say the evidence demonstrates the opposite. He was, of course, he came to national prominence in in in, in the Alga Hiss case. Um, yeah, you're right. Of course, he, he, he was politically savvy enough to separate himself from McCarthy, from Joe McCarthy. Um, Paul, let's get back to California. The California of the 50s and 60s was a politically quite different place. How would you make sense of that? What's happened in California? Is this in part a consequence of Nixon? Why is California now perhaps the most democratic state when in Nixon's time it was solidly Republican? You know, actually, in Nixon's time, California was always had a majority of, of, of Democrats. Um, the the voter registration, well, know, Southern like California, at least. Well, no, even nineteen sixty two, when he ran for uh, governorship of of California, the the voting um, uh, or the voter registration was was much. It was over a million more voters in favor of the Democrats, and the only way Richard Nixon could have won that election is if he would have united every single solitary Republican and then gotten you know, upwards of a million Democrats to vote for him. Otherwise, just mathematically, it's not possible. And, and if you look at Richard Nixon and you think about, you know, was he paranoid and uh, morally corrupt and flawed? In that election, one of the big issues was the John Birch Society. And um, the John Birch Society had been against Eisenhower and Richard Nixon refused to um, kowtow to the John Birch Society, and he refused to back any candidates that, that wouldn't denounce the John Birch Society. And he did that knowing that that would not um, unite the entire Republican Party, which basically meant he lost the election. What about the issue of race? Um, I'm not claiming that Richard Nixon was a racist, and that's not really the issue. But with Michael Harriet, for example, this morning, uh, the Southern Strategy 
the increasingly white nature of the Republican Party. Surely Nixon started that. Doesn't he have any responsibility? What what was the Southern strategy would be my first question, because... Well, the Southern strategy was to recognize that there was uh, a strategic opportunity in the early to mid-60s for the Republican Party to win the support of the white South, which tended to be racist and nostalgic for a very different kind of segregated world. Well, Richard Nixon didn't win any more of the South in 1968 than uh, President Eisenhower won in 1952 and 1956. And it doesn't appear that he really conducted any more of a, of a campaign in the South other than to try and hold what Eisenhower won. And if you think of like a racist Southern strategy, um, look at desegregation. It's, it's actually the quite opposite because when Richard Nixon became president, which was almost 15 years after Brown versus Board of Education was decided, and almost nothing was done to desegregate Southern schools in those, those years between Brown versus Board of Education in 1968, and Richard Nixon took office and um, less than 10% of Southern schools were desegregated. And what Richard Nixon told his staff was, you know, we're not going to poke our fingers in their eyes. We're not going to, you know, rub their noses in it. We're not going to get our names in the newspapers, but we're going to do this and we're going to desegregate this. And they did. And by the time he left office, the vast majority of schools were desegregated. And if you believe in this whole concept of a Southern strategy and attracting the racist votes, wouldn't that just piss off all the Southern racists, then have them vote against you in 72? Um, it seems like the, the exact contrary thing to do if you believed in this whole concept of a Southern strategy. Where do you think Nixon would be today politically? Would he, would he be comfortable within the Republican Party? Would he be uh, or a, a conservative perhaps within the Democratic Party? Well, Andrew, let me tell you, first of all, the, 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 the difference between his intellect and my intellect would fill the Grand Canyon. And I'm not going to presuppose to say what he would do about anything. But I, I think that he always stuck to principles. You know, he was a Jeffersonian Republican, limited government, fiscal responsibility. And he didn't can, he wasn't a populist. And I think that's the big difference between when Richard Nixon was, was in office and now where this this whole populism has 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 sprouted up, you know. Look at look at where we are today and all of the hostility. And everyone says we have a fractured country and we're divided. Well, you're, but you're sidestepping the question here. Would he be sympathetic, say, to Mitt Romney? Would he be on that wing? It's a fairly uh, unpopulated wing now of the Republican Party. Would he be comfortable with a Romney? It's hard for me to say one way or the other what he, you know, I can't really pick a person out of time and put him into another time period and say this or that would take place. My point would be to look at the look at the way that he conducted himself. And if 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 he were alive, I think he would be conducting himself and in that same manner, which probably wouldn't lead to some of the same problems. And you know, because in 1968, the country was tremendously fractured. You know, Robert Kennedy was assassinated. Martin Luther King was assassinated. Johnson couldn't even run for re-election. You know, um, it was so hostile. And, and then we had Richard Nixon. And what did he do? He came in and he reached across the aisle. He didn't bring in partisanship. He brought in people 
you know, Daniel yeah, Patrick Moynihan, Leon Panetta. I mean, um, I think we that 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 could be subject of another show, Paul. Um, that's <laughs> but my point is, is that he would work with people because he wanted to administer and and get things done. You, you focus did, on the personal side uh, of Nixon as a son, a brother, friend, husband, father, uncle, grandfather. I'm sure he was a in in some ways a decent man. Was he really a good husband? Didn't he treat his wife as if she was essentially just an accessory? No, no. Pat was, you know, if you look at the letters between Richard and Pat Nixon, and if you look at the letters, um, you know, letters are really revealing because that's, that's, you know, when you write something to a friend or a colleague of yours, you're really revealing yourself and kind of letting your hair down. And, you know, he was, he just did everything for Pat and, 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 and deferred to her um, in, in so many ways that aren't recognized. Is there anything now. that you've done a lot of research on Nixon? Clearly you're a fan. I mean, there's no doubt about that, but is there anything that you read or found that disturbed you about the man? I think most everything that I read about him um, really was surprising in in how much of a regular guy he was in terms of being, you know, charitable. Uh, you know, if you wrote him a letter, he'd write you back. Um, if you asked him what you thought about uh, what he thought about something, he'd write you back and tell you. Um, he would do things and have these um, relationships with people that were just astounding. And you know, look at the women in Richard Nixon's life. You brought up Pat. Pat wrote that the intro. Or, no, Trisha Nixon wrote the intro to your book or the foreword. Right. But if you look at, you know, I always tell people that the best judge of a man is a woman. You know, Evelyn Dorn was Richard Nixon's first legal secretary in 1937. She was dedicated to Richard Nixon her entire life. Um, Louis Gaunt uh, was in his Senate office and she stayed on with the Nixons their, their entire lives. Um, and she passed away after they did. Marge Acker just died two weeks ago. She was part of the, the Nixon Senate office and she worked for the Nixons her entire life. All of these women, you know, if he was this morally corrupt, um, you know, evil, insecure, paranoid person, all of these women would not dedicate their lives to him and be proud of the fact of doing it because they were all good and decent women. And, and, and all of them to a T, were dedicated to Richard Nixon. And, you know, like, you know, you talk about Pat, Pat would get mad at him because he would do things that were political, you know, like she really wanted him to nominate a female to the United States Supreme Court. And he wanted to nominate Mildred Lilly, who was a, a, a justice on the California Court of Appeal to the Supreme Court. But the American Bar Association voted, you know, the all men, all male committee voted 11 to one that she was unqualified. Um, Yet she was the longest serving justice in the state of California. And she was a Democrat, by the way. Um, granted, she was too conservative for Pat Brown to nominate to the state Supreme Court from the, the Court of Appeal. Um, and I'm not saying that she was a liberal Democrat, but, um, you know, I, I saw things like that. Uh, that there, is, is there a Nixonian tradition? In, is there someone you look up to in a contemporary American politics that reminds you of Richard Nixon? I would say very pragmatic politicians would remind me. Like of who? Um, Bill Clinton? 
Bill Clinton was very pragmatic. Um, he would be he would be somebody that I would say um, would be like Richard Nixon. Um, Richard Nixon was different because he was an introvert in an extrovert's profession, and he wasn't looking for the adulation that so many politicians strive for. You know, he was seeking accomplishment in what he was doing, which which really is an interesting thing in in politics. So, how should we remember him? As yeah, are you suggesting that he he everyone's got him wrong? That he should be remembered as a as a as a as a cheerful uh, all American uh, apple pie boy from Southern California, from a a happy family who led a a happy life and and, and was persecuted unjustly. He was an incredible all-American. He had he had ups and downs. You know, like Trisha said that she loved her father through all seasons. And I think that that was that was the way I would describe him. That, that it, nobody's perfect, but he he was not our darkest president, and he was certainly not our most flawed president. And he was a happy. You're, you're suggesting that he was a happy-go-lucky kind of guy. I don't know. I mean, he was. There's no doubt he was serious. Um, but he he was the type of person that had very wonderful and genuine relationships with people. You know, well, like, no one's doubting. Was, no one, no, no one, no one would argue against that. I mean, you're you're undermining actually the 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 vague affection I have for him, which is this deeply flawed but very ambitious and talented man. You're suggesting that he wasn't flawed. You've made him boring, I think, Paul. I'm not saying he was not flawed. I'm saying he was not deeply flawed. I think everyone is flawed. <laughs> now that's illegal. That's like that. That's a Clintonian <laughs> legal defense. He was flawed, but not deeply flawed. Well, you're a brave no man, Paul Carter, to defend a man who most people won't. Uh, but uh, you're brave enough to write a book about him. Congratulations on the new book, Richard Nixon, California's Native Son. Interesting book about the Californian roots of uh, Richard Nixon. Um, and uh, we'll have to see, Paul. He's um, with with Trump. Uh, Nixon looks increasingly decent. We'll have to see whether what happens in the next few years. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That was great.